Beyond Infinity. So welcome to another edition from Lockdown in Victoria. We're talking today about hacking and I'm joined by Dr. Ian Storey, lecturer in information systems at Melbourne's RMIT. Ian's a, a great contributor to the program and I'm very grateful that he's come back on to talk about hacking because this is one of the things that he knows well and he teaches uh, students about this. Welcome Ian, good to speak today. Hi Piers, always a pleasure. Let's launch into this because uh, you, you've kindly forwarded me some of your notes and there's, there's quite a bit to get through. Just as a little bit of an intro to this subject of hacking, I've been looking up some statistics about the number of internet users in the world and it, it is pretty amazing. There's approximately 3 billion internet users which is about 42% of the world's population. 84% of the, uh, the population of America is connected to the internet. Um, and then because we're all in lockdown, uh, and, and this is sort of varies obviously from place to place in the world, but a lot of people are working from home, a lot of people are relying on e-commerce, whether it's buying their, their supermarket shopping or buying clothes for their kids or upgrading their computers, whatever it happens to be to allow them to work from home. That's, that's a, a big trend of, of 2020 with uh, the COVID pandemic. And so I imagine, Ian, that there's a, a lot of opportunities for hacking. Yes, the rate of growth of the internet has been absolutely amazing. It's amazing to think 1995, you know, not that long ago, um, there was almost nothing. Mm. And <clears throat> all of the protocols that were developed for the internet, including the web protocol, are completely insecure as they were originally envisaged. Anybody could see, anybody with, a, with a sn what's called a sniffer, any of the ISPs, it was completely insecure. They, if you typed in your your credit card number, then only then would they think of adding in some encryption. Right. So, <clears throat> yeah, and it's it's just blown up in size enormously. Yeah, everyone everyone uses it these days. Yeah, I'm I'm actually surprised it's as low as what did you say, eighty seven percent. In, in the US? That's the usage of the internet. It's actually not talking about, about hacking uh, as much, but, uh, but yeah, that's just- the number a, of people. Yeah, look, exactly. 84%, I think, of the, of the population in America is, it has access to the internet or is connected, whether it's probably through a smartphone primarily. Um, yeah. But, but uh, yeah, it's, it is staggering. And uh, I can remember back to the 90s. In fact, in, in 1994, a friend in Melbourne hit upon the great idea of getting restaurants online and you could order your food through the internet. Wow, the problem, what a great the, idea. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But the, and the, we went around selling the idea to, to restaurants in Melbourne. But the issue was that not many restaurants had access to the internet in 94, but a lot of them had fax machines. So the system originally was set up to receive the order from a web page and then convert it to a fax that could then wow. be sent to the restaurant so that the restaurant could fulfill the order. That's how primitive it was. Anyway, wow. hey, look, it suffice wow. to say, it didn't fly. It was a little bit ahead of its time. But those guys, like a lot of people who got in early, they, you know, they learnt hard lessons along the way. They, they had some uh, you know, trial and error, but they wound up actually doing pretty well, like a lot of people oh, who got, got onto the yeah. internet early. Yeah, I mean, they branched yeah. out. They basically got into e-commerce. Yeah, yeah. Uh, e-commerce is where, it, where it's at. And um, it's an amazing 
an amazing system. It wouldn't have been possible without public key encryption, which I think we've talked about earlier. Yep. Um, which was an amazing development in in the late seventies. So, yeah, it and it's and it's amazing to think that it was all, you know, it was not owned by anybody originally. Well, it was, I guess it was owned by the the U.S. government originally, mm. uh, but now it's sort of become an absolute behemoth that uh, everybody <laughs> relies on. So does anyone actually own it? I mean, I know there's some. I know there's some organisations that that, um, that that sort of oversee it. You know, there's the. the um, I think the Tim Berners Lee um, is involved with a with an organisation that kind of has some role. The in, I, and IETF. Um, uh, let me just uh, <coughs> use my brain here. No, I'm googling. <laughs> IETF. <laughs> um, international. Uh, doesn't even I've typed the wrong thing um, Internet Engineering Task Force um, mm. issued what they called requests for comments which were public requests and it was all done open source for the development of TCP IP which is the backbone well the basic protocol that everything all that everything else runs on um, it was developed by, you know, just people who had great ideas and uh, would add a comment here and a comment there, and it was all done open source. Yep. So it was designed so that networks could communicate between each other. The problem with the old network system was each of the networks had their own protocol, different language. Mm. And none of them could talk to each other, so they had to design a separate language, a kind of almost a fake language, that reroutes between different networks and and then hands over to their language. So all of these languages, quote unquote, protocols, what we call protocols, were developed after various networking protocols were developed. Yep. And it wasn't it wasn't actually until quite late in the day that Tim Berners-Lee made the great contribution of web pages. Right. Um, originally, the the internet started technically late 60s, and mm. it wasn't until uh, early 90s that there was even very, very basic web pages. And there were right. bu bulletin boards. Yep. And even some guys got together one afternoon and devised a protocol that could run over pigeons. <laughs> Literally. Right. I think right. they called it the avian version of, of TCP IP. Right. Um, they lost a lot of packets, unfortunately, because some of the... I shouldn't be laughing. Uh, some of the poor pigeons died, um, and so they lost packets. Uh, yeah. You've lost me a little bit. How could... Pack, are you talking about data packets? Uh, how could yeah, data, how could data were, packets were, get pigeons? <laughs> they were using carrier pigeons, messages typed ah, in. Actually, ah. it's probably good you ask because uh, the listeners probably were confused as well. Um, they used packets that were written and then the carrier pigeon would be sent off with the packet and then the other, on the other end, the guy would take the packet and use the protocol, type the rest of the message, put it on another pigeon and send it back. Wow, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is amazing how much this has evolved and with it 
uh, with all that sort of opportunity and success and the openness of it and that amazing ability to have something in your pocket, you know, with the advent of smartphones in particular from 10, 15 years ago. The iPhone was the first and it came out in 2007 and then it was very quickly followed by a bunch of other devices. You know, just that ability to be able oh, to the, look, no, look the, things there up. Was, and, uh, there was a BlackBerry, but no one remembers it because it was kind of horrible. Mm. Do you remember when executives used black Blackberries and they were showing them off? And yes, yeah, <laughs> and they had those tiny little keyboards that you needed to sort of you know you had to use a, like a, a pencil, uh, the head of a pencil to kind of push the the keys. Yeah, you had to squint to look at the keyboard. Yeah, um, and it did. It just didn't fly because, and they also didn't have anything like the app ecosystem, which was the the, the great thing that made smartphones really take off. Was yeah, yeah, two thousand seven. They, they yeah. just took off. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So with all that advancement and all the positive benefits that have come from this, there's also been this problem of data security and hacking. And that's the focus of today's discussion. And that's something that you know quite a bit about because as a lecturer in information systems at RMIT, you you actually teach classes about hacking and about information security and, and digital risk management. We have a number of classes. Our undergrad class is um, you could say a, a course in quote unquote hacking and we have a little lab set up and um, they use a thing called Kali Linux. Kali is the god of I guess it's um, Hindu god of uh, protection. Kali Linux is an amazing system with a whole lot of uh, tools for analyzing attacks and a whole lot of tools for doing attacks. Right. And we have a lab at RMIT, unfortunately not used at the moment, but we have one set up where students turn on each other's cameras, um, you know, uh, get into each other's phones um, in ways, you know, that are sanctioned. And, mm. and the lab is cut off from around and they learn how to do what's called fingerprinting. Um, you know, they learn how to do hacking. The course uh, that I teach is more of a business course, but in order for managers to be able to manage information security, they have to have a nodding understanding of the various technical elements, and especially networking, public key cryptography, but also hacking. Mm -hmm. And I find with my students, it's a great way to introduce the subject because it's fun, let's face it. It's like the Wild West, right? Um, <laughs> We all love to hear about the hacking exploits of, of the, the Wild West, if, if I can use that analogy again. It's also a good introduction to what you need in order to do security. Yep. And as, as I go through the course, you know, I begin by talking about um, hacking. And as we move through the course, people start to think, well, I'm going to be responsible for these attacks not happening that makes me a bit worried how do I do that you know so we move on to controls for hacking and and risk analysis and mitigation and all that kind of stuff the classes that I have on hacking everyone loves I love them you know <laughs> <laughs> so yeah they're, they're quite fun well there's, there's, there's a lot of sort of excitement to the whole thing I mean I remember reading about the guy who uh, who set up the Silk Road website in America which was for quite a while was like a, you could buy drugs through it, you know, illicit drugs, narcotics, 
and he'd made a mistake of he'd, he'd put down his real name on a Twitter account very briefly. He'd left it there for literally a couple of seconds and then he deleted the tweet which contained his real name. And that was enough for the FBI. He was sitting in a public library, I think, with his laptop running his business as he did. All he had to do was be able to close the lid of the laptop and that would automatically encrypt all the data on his laptop and make make it impossible for them to get him. There'd be no evidence. And they stopped him. They managed to stop him closing his laptop. And he's and he's and he's now in jail. And that was well, the end of the that was the end of the Silk Road, but it was very quickly replaced by another one. I I also you know, I go back to the Second World War with the Enigma machine. Mm. Um it would have been stupid for the British to act on each piece of information that they had coming from their decryption of the German uh, radio traffic mm. because the Germans would have realised, hey, we've been hacked, let's increase our security. Yep. And not to get too, into too much detail, if they'd add a, added a couple of extra rotors, the British would have been sunk. Mm. But as it was, they were pretty much able to, <laughs> as I tell my students, they'd, they'd use a new key in the morning and it would be decrypted by midday, you know. Mm. But they had to sit on a lot of that information. Even people would die because they sat on it. Yeah. But yeah. less people would die because of what they found. So, I mean, as, as a warning to people who want to try these things out, don't be stupid, you know, because... I have my doubts that the Silk Road is as secure as they say. And by secure, you know, I mean, you're probably giving yourself away to someone. So, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, Ian, Ian, I think that there was, I think what they might have even done, I think there was a second one that, that took over because it was a space that, you know, they could. there was definitely demand through the dark web uh, all around the world. But I, I think probably particularly in America, people were prepared to do this. And uh, I think there was a big sting where they, they busted a whole lot of people because they the, the FBI or law enforcement set themselves up as the people running. They, they busted the people who were running it and then they instead of shutting it down and even announcing that they'd, that they'd busted it, they just took over running it and, and were able to yep. reel, it, reel yep. in all these people who were using it and that way they made well, a, a much bigger sting than they would have with only I the mean, people. And, and don't feel too sorry about these people too because... Some no. of the things they were doing were nasty, you know, yep. quite, yep. quite nasty. Yes. Um, so I don't waste too much sleep over that. No. And, you know, and I, I'm sure they've caught lots of uh, terrorists by doing all sorts of analysis. Mm. But it is an issue. Privacy is an issue. And it still worries me. It's an issue that we tend to shove away these days. I remember we first talked about it a lot uh, when the internet was first becoming popular. But, but people tend to shove it in the back of their mind. Well, I mean, there's people who say that if you're on Facebook and social media, you've, you've given it up. Or if you use Google, you've, you've given it up. You know? Yeah, yeah. We're in a sort of post-privacy world, which is, a, which is another discussion. We're here to talk about the fun stuff today, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you, so your students get to play around when the lab's operating. They get to infect each other's... Um, uh, phones or laptops or, or devices because of the internet of things you, you uh, alluded to before with being able to take control of something like a camera uh, which might be internet connected 
uh, or have connection to a Wi-Fi network, for example. So there's so much scope for it. It's not just you know devices like smartphones or, or laptops or or desktop computers or, or or networks, servers, and that sort of thing. Uh, it's also people's lights or their heating or their camera or a power station. There's a range of attacks. Let's talk about a few. Mm. So the very basic kind of attack is denial of service. And that's called a DOS attack, denial of service, or distributed denial of service. And that's where a website or a web server is targeted by a lot of packets coming in asking to be connected. But they're trying to get connected to addresses that don't exist. So they're deliberately asking the machine to hook them up to an to a an address that doesn't exist. Well, the protocol for TCP/IP tries to find those addresses and will leave a little bit of memory waiting for the resolution of that address. And it all takes time and it takes computer resources. And when they flood enough of those requests in, the mas- machines start to slow down. In fact, what happens is you know, they go okay for a while and then they reach their limit of memory and they can't, they can't run anymore. They say that this is what happened to the census server. Remember a few years ago when you couldn't get into the census server? That's right, yeah. That's probably the case. It, it, it also happened in around 2000, just before the dot-com crash. I have my suspicions that the dot-com crash was caused by the lack of confidence because of these attacks. So there were DOS attacks on on Amazon, I think it was, eBay, I remember. Um, (coughs) And uh, they solved those problems by just having enough servers, what they call server farms. Mm. So they, um, they could absorb these attacks. And there are some people who say that what the Australian government didn't do was supply enough money to absorb the, the DOS attacks. Uh, but that's all hearsay. No one is really sure what happened. Mm. Just on those denial of service attacks, they're, so they're generally just, it's sort of like vandalism. There's, I'm just trying to work out what's to be gained by someone doing that. You can cripple a competitor. Yep. Uh, so you're not affecting the data integrity, but you're in affecting a, what's called availability. So there's a thing called the CIA triangle, which is very popular in information security parlance, which doesn't stand for the Central Intelligence Agency. It stands for confidentiality, integrity, and availability. So denial of service attack attacks availability, but it's very obvious because it's just flooding the server. So anybody looking at the packets coming in, we've got a denial of service attack. What might not be so obvious is that sometimes it hides a more stealthy attack. So while everybody is busy trying to get the system back up, trying to stop all of these machines, sometimes a whole bunch of zombie machines, the attacker is actually going in very lightly and getting what they want, you know, whether it's what kind of data or stealing money or whatever it is. Um, so it can be used to hide a more stealthy attack. But in, in the labs, um, the students have fun slowing down each other's computers so that they can't run anymore. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um. 
You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au. Yeah, so what other things can they do? They can, in the labs, they can run what's called sniffer programs. A sniffer isn't really a hacking tool. Well, it's not a, a hack, but it's a tool for both hackers and for security experts. So you can um, you can sniff on the traffic that's happening. As long as you, you're logged into a particular network, you don't have to be actually logged in on a particular application. You can see all of the traffic that's going past your computer. So you can run, there's a program called Wireshark, which is what everyone uses these days. It's a brilliant program, um, freely available. And you can see everybody's connection to all of the wireless devices on your local Wi-Fi uh, network. And you can see all of the packets going in and out. So using a sniffer can be a, a really excellent tool for you know seeing what's going on. And it'll it will pretty much identify, for example, a DOS attack. Okay. Other sort of technological attacks that can be done in the lab. One is a really, really sneaky thing called a keylogger. I wish I could show you a picture of a keylogger. It's just on on an ordinary desktop. If you you can have a physical keylogger that's a little dongle that connects between your keyboard and the USB. Okay. And that little dongle is recording all of your key presses. And you might not even know it, not, especially if it's connected into the back of the computer. Yeah, right. Perfect. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> you, can re- you can record people typing in their passwords. Yes. And then at the end of the day, or when you get access to the dongle, you, you take it out. It gives you... The person typed this and then they hit the enter key and then they hit the up and down arrow and you can see the passwords as they're being typed in. It's a really, really nasty tool. <laughs> but <laughs> but you can also send it through a web page. And if a person clicks the wrong link and you won't even notice it because the programs, I, I don't know, 10K maybe, you know, uh, the program for the server is nothing you know it'll download like that you'll never notice Mm. and it'll just be sitting there without a dongle in software recording your key presses Mm. and then when the when the hacker wants to get the information it just asks your computer to send it back and they can see remotely they could be in in russia yes (laughs) and they can see your key presses and so they you know they connect your account name or whatever with your bank account they can see you typing in the url for all of that as well the uh, web address for those they can see you then typing in your name and then your password and you know and then your uh, credit card details (laughs) i shouldn't laugh it's terrible it's really Mm. terrible Mm. so these keyloggers don't even have to be hardware yeah and they can be loaded over the web 
they can spoof websites. I, I heard an example actually, a, a, a family member, instead of putting in Qantas.com when she went to book a flight, she Googled Qantas, clicked on a, on a search result, which wasn't, it looked like Qantas, but it was something slightly different. Yeah, uh, QUA it. it. Yeah, exactly. And it looked and it Quanta looked ex- spelled with a U, right? Yeah, yeah. And it looked exactly like the website and they were very smart and they got her credit card. They they allowed her to the, the flight out worked, so they went away separately and booked her the flight on the real Qantas yep, website. Yep. But they'd got her credit card information and then didn't bother to book the return flight and when she got so it bought them time to misuse the credit card. And then so when she took her return flight, say a week later after making the first flight, she found, oh, oh sorry, you don't have that flight. You're not, you're not booked. Then tries to use the credit card. Oh, sorry, the credit card's maxed out. So, yeah, and they went off and, and, and it was people based in Melbourne. The hackers were apparently in Melbourne and they, they tried to buy a car. Oh, wow. um, so 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 that's the kind of situation where you think you're at a particular website you, and, and that's where you've got the key logging that's that's recording your your bank data and I mean look there's 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 a heap of uh, and it's not really covered in this conversation because we're talking about sort of cyber um, internet based uh, computer based um, hacking but there's a lot of people who get get people they ring up they cold call and say oh we're calling from the NBN you know we, we want to improve your speed can you jump on your computer and um, give us access and we'll sort things out for well, you well this That's is enough. um in teaching information security we cover a lot of issues that are now sort of converging into information security so um, for example we, we I talk about physical security you know doors and keys and things because a lot of it is technology cctvs locks electronic locks and all that kind of stuff so they mm. all converge now mm. but one of the main elements that that we talk about in in our courses and we always have to talk about is social engineering and social engineering is incredibly effective kevin mitnick was a famous hacker back in the day who was very very famous for social engineering attacks there's all sorts of all sorts of tricks that people can do you know uh, dress up like a janitor no one notices janitors oh mm. by the way with covid people are learning how important cleaners are <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> you know you don't notice them they walk in very deftly puts a usb into the server and grabs data out of it you know he has a bucket and a mop and all of that walks into the room and steals data or uh, they call up over the phone I've got the CEO here and look I'm doing a deal I'm about to close a deal with a really important big firm I don't want to hear it but I'll pass you over to the CEO because he's forgotten his password and uh, the poor person on the other end of the line divulges the password Mm almost like a magician's tricks they can use sleight of hand to stop you from being able to to work out what they're doing yeah and and the, the you know if they can do that rather than you know learn for two years how to break a piece of technology then they'll do that because it's a it's a very effective way of breaking in so that's called social engineering and social engineering is is very very popular one of the forms of social engineering is what's called vishing, which is related to what you were saying before, where 
there are phishing attacks where you get people to click on a link on in a in a um, in an email, mm. and if if you hover over the link, you can see the URL, and mm. the URL might look real. It might look like Commonwealth, but really the L is a one or something, you know. Mm. And mm. with some fonts, they they're exactly the same. Mm. And and also you can poison domain name server on the computer which is a really nasty attack so you go to these fake websites that handle your your passwords and then they pass it on just like you said with Qantas the Qantas um, guys mm. that's a form of phishing as well but when you do it over the phone that's called vishing so it's like voice phishing by the way the term uh, phishing comes from ph phone hacking ah. and some of the most well-known early phone hackers came from Melbourne right there's a brilliant book written by Sue Dreyfus um, I can't remember the name of the book but she, she writes about these early hackers one of them comes from a university that I know and love they would go to the then Valhalla theatre in Melbourne Okay. So they would go to the Valhalla Theatre and watch Blues Brothers because it played for about 10 years straight. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, people waving cigarette lighters over their heads. And then yeah. they would go off and a, bun you know, a small bunch of them would go off and hack the phone system. Mm. And that was called Freaking, P-H-R-E-A-K. Julian Assange is an Australian and was a hacker in the early days of the internet, I think. Yes, he was, yeah. Um, yeah. And and so was uh, Steve Jobs. One of the f things that he first did was to work out a way of making free long-distance phone calls through public phone boxes. So, yeah, you know, there were, interesting. There was a whole industry in that, yeah, um, working out how to make the right sounds over the phone system so that you could trick the other end into thinking that you'd actually paid when you hadn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking at Google Transparency Report. It says that uh, since 2017, uh, the cyber world witnessed a worrying ri a rapid rise in phishing websites. As per cybercrime stats from Google, the number of phishing websites grew from approximately 584,000 in that year to more than 1.35 million this year, representing an increase of over 130%. At the same time, the number of malware sites has taken a nosedive. In 2017, the estimated figure was 516,000. Today, the number is less than 53,000 websites, which is interesting, isn't it? That malware's yeah. gone down while phishing's gone up. Phishing websites has gone up. And just on the subject of, of passwords and, and how to manage them and the problems with that, the apparently the average person on the planet if you worked it out, you divide the number of passwords in use by the total population, so it's about 7 billion. That's 38.4 passwords per individual. And if, <laughs> if, if, you work, if you work for a Fortune 500 company, the average employee is expected to manage double the world's average of about 90 business and personal accounts, which is, which is a heap of passwords to remember. I always reinforce on my students that... Let's say you've got a password that's four numbers long. You add an extra digit. You multiply by 10 the number of numbers that you have to guess for somebody to hack it. Mm. And if you add another one, you multiply that by 10. 
So it grows exponentially. Long passwords are a really good defense mechanism. And it's quite usual for security experts to lecture or to, to raise awareness of a firm's employees that they should not respond to phishing attacks, you know, don't click on links in, in web pages. Mm. But they should also use long passwords, random passwords, and different passwords for each site. Yep. If I was designing a hack attack, I'd just design a website that was attractive and get people to log in and then try their login on, on other sites. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. Because people reuse their password. Right. So that means that you've got to have a different password for each login, a long password for each login, and a randomish password for each login. Yep. Well, you can't remember that. Yep. It's just impossible. So you need to keep a list. Well, you know, don't keep the list on post-it notes on your computer <laughs> in a computer at work. You know, mm, mm. and people do that. People used to do that a lot. Yeah. Now the thinking is it's better to at least have a book in your drawer at home and use separate passwords than to just have a system for for simple passwords. Okay. Um, yeah. I've, but I've I've talked to people who are good in information security and they say, look, I just I just couldn't be bothered. If I'm going to get hacked, I'm going to get hacked. Remembering all those passwords is just absolutely impossible. Well, I think it's worth it. And the reason I think it's worth it is because imagine a, a herd of wildebeest out on the African plains and a tribe of lions. The lions are going to go for the wildebeest that's slowest. Do you know what I'm saying? If you're the wildebeest that's the slowest, you know, the sluggish one, if you're the person who uses a short, easy-to-remember password and, and reproduces them on different sites you're much, 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 much more likely to be hacked. Yeah. So it's a good defense to use proper passwords. Yes. The other reason, and I mentioned this to you, as a statistic that I was looking at. So in January this year, 1.2 million Microsoft accounts were compromised. And according to the company, 99.9% .9 of them had one thing in common when it came to a vulnerability. They all did not make use of multi-factor authentication. That's that's another way for listeners. That's another way you can secure things and, and maybe get around with not changing your password as much as as some people would recommend. This if you've got this is um, indicative of a um, a general principle called defense in depth. Mm. Uh, people interpret defense in depth in a number of ways, but but one way, um, and and it's a principle that I really like, is um, you don't have. You know, you don't have just one door, you have two. Let's say a car. If you're breaking into a car, you have the lock on the door and you have, you remember those wheel locks that people used to use? Yep. Well, you have to have both the ability to break the lock on the door and the wheel lock. That multiplies the, the difficulty of getting in. So it has to be one step followed by another. If it's one of two possible steps, you know, if it's an or relationship rather than and relationship, it doesn't work, you know. If you've got two doors and they can get in through either one, then you haven't increased the difficulty. But with two-factor login, it's 
defense in depth. You have to log in normally. And every now and then, you have to verify it with, say, you know, a number sent through SMS. Yeah. And I love two-factor. But I, I was caught out once because I went to Singapore. Mm-hmm. And their phone system is, is entirely different. Mm-hmm. And I was getting emails and they asked me to verify with the, with the SMS and I couldn't read it. I forgot to turn off, you know, two-factor. I was really sweating because all my work there relied on it. I was there for about a week. Yeah. So I was very, very lucky that on my laptop, they didn't ask me for those days that I was there for, for the two-factor verification. Right. That's the problem with getting a bit too smart sometimes. If you're going into your Gmail, Google will offer you, if you set up two-factor authentication, I recommend to listeners that they do if they use Gmail because it does adds a layer of security, which is what you're talking about. They actually give you a list. So if you're going away somewhere that may not have phone access and you want to be able to use, you know, say borrow a computer or use even a public computer, say in a library or a cyber cafe or equivalent, you can actually print out a list of codes of second factor authentication codes to take with you to use each time and they'll and they'll use so you can kind of generate them in advance yeah i i did that but i forgot all about it you know just forgot about it in all the rush of getting there but that but that's now being used by so many different things now you know like there's a thing called verified by visa which is effectively a second factor authentication if you do certain things with with banking there's there's second factor authentication involved there too, and even even with your Apple ID, if you if you're a, a, an Apple user, uh, that that now has second factor authentication as well. So it's become it's almost become the norm. You know, it's like it's it's more common than not. Yeah, and and rightly so. It's it's really good. The issue with two factor is that while technically, if you have some very weak systems for getting in, combined, you know in depth with some strong ones the overall strength of the security is only about as strong as the strongest one it's like the gazelle you know the gazelles on the in africa you're not the you're not the slowest gazelle in the herd and so you're the least attractive sort of target for hackers of opportunity targets of opportunity for hackers One of the things you can use also is a password management program. And I mean, we talked a little bit about this off air, but there's one called LastPass that that I've heard of. I uh, use uh, one password. Right. And they allow you to have basically one master password and then to generate a required password for each website through that that single app. Well, the thing about that, and that's great, that's a, that's a good, secure, sensible way of managing all those multiple random numbers and, and letters and upper and lowercase 10 digit or 12 digit passwords, which otherwise would be impossible to remember. It's a way of managing all that and centralizing it. But actually, I think there was an example of LastPass getting hacked. The actual company that, that had the master password, which is obviously a big blow to people who are relying on that for security. They know what to do, and, and, and despite all the measures that you might take, there are, there are often ways around them. I mean, that's a, a big danger, isn't it, that the, um, that the actual master password can be hacked. But you've got to go all the way back then to, to remembering your own password, you know, your password through some other, other mechanism. Mm. I actually, I remember reading an article by a security guy who recommended that you write your own encryption algorithm to store your passwords. Don't right. trust 
don't trust any other program to do it for you. Okay. Oh well, that's good. I'll just I'll just learn how to code, and I can yeah, do I'll that. Ju- I'll just code it up in a week or so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'd love you to review us on iTunes. It's a great way to let others know if you've liked our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Beyond Infinity RPPFM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter.